All right. We are going to look at the word now. We're in John's gospel. Guess what chapter? <laughs> One. Good. There. Been paying attention. So, in today's text, Jesus asks two men um, a very important question. And in some ways, it's the question of our lives, right? You know, the ancient Greeks were taught that the, the heart of wisdom is to know thyself. You ever heard that expression? Know thyself, right? Those words were actually, it, it, if we actually went to uh, Delphi, where the oracle of Delphi was in Greece. And on the, in the temple of Apollo there, they had those words in gold letters. It was such an important philosophical idea in Greek culture, know thyself. And I think it's good advice, but how do you know yourself? How do you know yourself? Self-deception is one of the most common traits of human beings. Self-justification, self-rationalization, there's all kinds of ways we won't know ourself or don't know ourself. The Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah way back in Jeremiah 17 9 the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it and then the Lord there says I the Lord search the heart I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways according to the results of his deeds. So God knows us but do we really know ourselves or how can we know ourselves? I think this question, uh, it's a Jesus question. I love Jesus questions. That w the one we're going to look at today is, is really the best way you can know yourself. The question is this. What do you seek? Simple. What do you seek? If you can get a handle on what you seek, you will know yourself. I really think that's true. It's not that hard to answer and it reveals so much about us. Just sit there and think about what do you seek? You know, take some time today and reflect. What am I seeking? What, what do I seek in my life? So I don't need to spend endless hours on an analyst couch to figure out who I am or uh, how to know myself. I don't need to meditate endlessly on, on my navel or do any of those kind of things. I, I just need to answer that question. What do I seek? If you don't know God now there's another whole problem because if you start asking what do I seek there's another thing that comes in. How do I measure that? So once I look at myself and say okay what do I seek and I write down the things that I seek the things that I desire the most. How do I evaluate that? Right? Some people would just say well you know, if it feels good to me, that's what I seek and that's what I'm going for. Wise people know that that's not a good idea. It's, it's dangerous to just say, well, I just want this, so that's what I'm going to do. So there's, there's another question related to all of this, and, and that's what you might call the ought question. The ought question. What should I seek? So to know yourself, you say, what do I seek? To know whether what you're seeking is good or bad, you ask the ought question, what should I seek? Right? Does that make sense? And that makes things very complicated for some people. Now for a Christian, that's actually the easiest part because what I ought to seek is whatever this tells me I'm supposed to seek. So that's a pretty easy one, right? 
So looking at what I seek is an excellent diagnostic tool for my heart because I ought to seek whatever God wants first foremost and always that's what I ought to seek. So almost right away with just a little bit of thought I can actually discern what is most important to me to know myself I measure myself by God's word and by that then by God's word I know what are honorable desires that I seek and what are sinful tendencies that I have or sins that I seek right. So if I'm seeking anything wrong or anything out of proportion to what God tells me to seek then I know that I've got some soul work to do and that's where I can focus my prayer life and my commitments. So know thyself how answer Jesus question what do you seek. It's a very insightful question. So John decided when he wrote this gospel that the very first words that Jesus speaks should be that question. What do you seek? So today we're moving forward in the first week of Jesus official ministry. We're past the prologue. We made it and we're into the story of Jesus as John tells it as John actually experienced it and he tells the story with an explicit theological and I would say evangelistic purpose. He writes he says at the end of the gospel so that you may believe in Jesus. That's his purpose. But first he tells us in the prologue the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 he tells us who Jesus is very specifically very strongly. And then the story itself begins in verse 19 and last week we made it all the way to verse 34. How about that? You didn't think I could do it. (laughs) But I want to talk a little bit about how John constructs things his style of writing. John is not into unnecessary details much at all. He knows there are three other gospels that tell many of the things he doesn't bother with because those gospels Matthew Mark and Luke were written quite a bit before the gospel of John at least as best we could tell they were. So um, in that way then he his gospel is a supplemental gospel with a very definite purpose but he doesn't deal with a lot of the stuff that's in the other gospels I think I think they figured out it's about 10% similar and then he adds all kinds of supplemental material around what the other gospels say much more detail about fewer things because he's got a specific reason for, for writing and that's that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. So John isn't into this super detailed thing. He, he doesn't really need to, me, need to be and I, I think the more I read this gospel the more I realize that he kind of assumes that you've read one of the other gospels at least or are familiar with the story of Jesus already and a lot of the other details. So I don't think this is even intended as a standalone I think it's meant to be added to the other gospels. So last week for example we looked at John the Baptist. How many people is he baptizing in John's gospel? Well it actually doesn't mention him baptizing anyone. So uh, it does talk about him as the Baptist he's called that but um, it doesn't describe that because Matthew and Mark and Luke describe that. They actually describe his ministry. John doesn't bother doing that. He assumes we know kind of who John the Baptist is. So he begins remember with that delegation from Jerusalem that came to him to interview him and that's the day before Jesus arrives and, and, and John has this encounter with him that we talked about last time as well. So last structurally then John begins the, the narrative portion of the gospel with the first week of Jesus active ministry. Right? So 
that would be the day Jesus came to John the Baptist after Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the devil. When he comes out from that experience he goes to John the Baptist and that's where that story begins. So um, that's the day that Jesus um, passed the test. He made it through the 40 days, didn't eat for 40 days, was tempted by Satan personally for 40 days and did not sin, did not give in to any temptation. So he's the approved savior of mankind. He's the true lamb of God. He's spotless. So Jesus remained in complete control throughout those 40 days and rebuffed Satan's every effort to bring him down. And now that he's proven the spotless lamb, the human, spotless human being, John makes this great declaration in verse 29 of chapter 1, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That was day one. That was day one. Today we're going to look at two more days, okay? So Jesus came back. That's the first day of his public ministry. And now we're going to look at the next two days. So the first part of John's gospel is really covering the first six days or so of the first week, if you will, of his ministry life. So we're going to look at two more days here. So what happens on these days is Jesus starts to attract disciples. And the first ones come from John the Baptist's disciples. So let's read verse 35 and kind of notice the details of memory here. You know, um, John describes this as a man that saw it. He was paying attention. So again, the next day, so the day after um, what we talked about last week, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. So it's a repeat. Now it was a longer version the first day. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the next day and it's behold the Lamb. So a couple things here. He's standing there with two of his disciples. His disciples. Men who have given as much time and energy to assist him in his ministry as they could afford to do. These were working men. We also see here that John had no interest at all in hanging on to these two men. He's ready to let them go. His ministry was one of preparation. Getting Israel ready to receive the Messiah. And now he has declared that the one who has appeared is that person. He has arrived. So now it's the time for his men to move on. So they're standing there together and John the Baptist is watching Jesus very carefully. And there's a Greek word for um, him looking at Jesus here. And it's a very intensive form of the verb to see. That There's a word to see and if you add certain things to it it makes it like looking, intently looking, that kind of an idea there, kind of a penetrating look. And John says to his men, the words that he said the day before, behold the Lamb of God. The day before it was a declaration, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. On this day it's direction, behold the Lamb, follow him. That's what he's telling them. So John is detaching these two men from his ministry and sending them to his superior, the one he's been preparing for. And in verse 37 we see that they got the message. So verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So they knew what he was saying. This is the one we've been waiting for. Serve him. He's the Lamb of God. Now, um, Later on in chapter 3, John will 
put this into words like this. He said he must increase and I must decrease, right? My ministry is fading, eventually leading to his execution actually. And Jesus' ministry is going to grow. He's stepping out of the way. And he was taken out of the way in a very strong fashion. But he's passing on his disciples to Jesus. And this wasn't discussed by anybody. They didn't, he didn't sit down with Jesus earlier and say, you know, I think a couple of your guys would really help me out. And John says, yeah, I think so. It's sort of time. They didn't talk about it at all. He just sees Jesus and he says, follow him. And they start following. It wasn't discussed ahead of time at all. And you can tell that from verse 38. Because Jesus turns and sees them coming along behind. And that's when they catch up to him and he asks that question. What question was it? What do you see? Good. You pay attention. Good for you. That's so good. So verse 38 Jesus turned and saw them following. So at some point he's looking around and he sees two of John the Baptist's disciples coming and he says to he waits for them. They come up to him and he says what do you seek? What do you seek? And one of them says rabbi which translated means teacher he says. So he's translating Hebrew words for you. Where are you staying? That's what they ask him. That's kind of an unexpected answer. What do you seek? Where are you staying? <laughs> that, you, could, you could mean several things by answering that way, right? You could mean we're staying with you tonight. You could, we want to join you. We're your new disciples. That could be what that means. Or as we shall see, one of them uh, fully trusting in John the Baptist's directions that now they are to follow Jesus. One of them already has in mind going and getting his brother and bringing him along with Jesus. So he might be literally be asking just where are you staying? He could mean any of those things or all of those things. Um, they could just mean where can we talk? You know, where are you staying? We'd love to talk to you more about this. It could have been any of those, th- those things. But Jesus' answer is a little playful and most inviting. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So he's inviting them to join him. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So they have a day with Jesus. Now the 10th hour could be 10 a.m. or it could be 4 p.m. depending on what time system you were using. So in Roman time, the way they divided up the day, it's 10 a.m. In Jewish time, the way they divided up the day, it's 4 p.m. So um, John lives in Asia Minor and he wrote this book in Ephesus. So he's probably using Roman time. So it's probably 10 a.m. That's my guess. And that kind of fits the idea that they spent the day with Jesus. So that was in the morning when Jesus left. Heading off to this other area. And John points them out. And they follow him. And then he invites them to spend the day with him. Basically that's what's going on here. So uh, would you like to spend a day with Jesus? That would be like the best thing in the entire world. Huh? Uh, yes, that, ha- that comes later though. Yeah. But, but yes, that would be great too. In fact, I really think we should probably cook him breakfast. Uh, but, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, to have him do it would be awesome. Okay, so, um, so now, I, now think back to the Jesus question. What do you seek? So in the case of these two men, it's very clear what they seek. They want to follow him. They're following the directions of John the Baptist. They want to follow him. They have helped the ministry of the first prophet in 400 years. John the Baptist was the first prophet in Israel in 400 years. They helped him. He points them to Jesus as the Lamb of God. As the very thing that we should seek. 
the, Jesus the Lamb of God. He's the one we should seek. And they didn't know that much yet. John taught them to repent of their sins and be ready for the Messiah. That's how it all started. And they know now that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. He's pointed him out. And as sincere seekers of God, they're excited about what God is doing and they're going to follow. So what do they seek? Well they've already shown a great interest in whatever God is doing right now and they're going to pursue anything that furthers that. That's, that's what they seek. So they know the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth and they're going to follow him. So now look, who are these guys? People like that that are just going to follow? They must be like, you know, religious scholars or people that spend all their day reading the Bible or people that are like super spiritual or maybe priests that work in the temple or something. These guys are fishermen. They work real hard every day. They provide for their families on dangerous seas and labor very hard late into the night and they're giving as much time as they can to John the Baptist to help him and now they're going to go help Jesus. That's, that's what they're thinking. These are rugged men. They're hardworking men. They're the kind of men who do take things seriously but also who work very hard in their life. They're not Bible scholars. They're not spending all their time reading scriptures and things like that. Probably don't even have any scriptures. They have to listen on, listen on the Sabbath day at the synagogue to hear what the scriptures are. So they're sincere seekers of God. That's what they're seeking. What God is doing. What are you doing Lord? I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to go with you with that. So who were they? Well we found, find out the name of one of them in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. That tells you right there that Simon Peter was more famous than Andrew. <laughs> because he, that's, he's trying to help identify him. This is Peter's brother. So in the late first century when John wrote this Peter was way more well known obviously than Andrew was. They would people, Christians would have known pretty much all the disciples names maybe. But Peter, Paul, John, those were like the top guys. Um, So anyway, there's two men mentioned in verse 40, but only Andrew is named. Who's the other one? Well, almost certainly, I am 93.7% sure that it's John that wrote this gospel. He's he's putting himself there. He never uses his own name in his own gospel, even when he plays a major role. He's either the, the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. He never names himself. It's a humility thing. Uh, So he usually refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved but he's not that yet because he's not his friend yet. So he's Andrew's friend. So right now he's just the other guy, right? So we can't say 100% that the friend is John but the reasons are pretty compelling. Also, if you look at the other gospels that list the 12 apostles, James and John are always like really high on the list. So Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're always like the first four or, or the least in the first five that are always mentioned out of the 12. And um, also just the way he writes this, talking about people looking at other people and those kind of details, he was there. So it really makes sense that he's an, he's an eyewitness and that's, that would be John as well. And all the men that are mentioned here in chapter 1 become apostles. So he's got to be one of the 12 and or, or likely he'd be one of the 12. So I'm, I'm sure it's John. Okay, anyway, before the day is over, Andrew goes to get his brother. Now, 
James and John and Andrew and Peter were in business together. They, they, they used the same boat. So they, they fished together. So these guys all know each other. So verse 41. He, f- he found his own brother Simon. Talking about Andrew. Simon is Simon Peter. And he said to him we have found the Messiah. Which translated means Christ. So again this is written in Greek. To a Greek people. Greek speaking people. The word Messiah would not be known to them. So he translates it for them. Just like he translated Rabbi a little bit earlier. So there's only two places in the entire New Testament. Where the Hebrew word Messiah is used actually. And they're both in John's gospel. So um, it's not a word familiar to Greek speaking. They would say Christos. That Christ is the name that means Messiah to them. The anointed one. So uh, that's that's what he's explaining here. So Andrew tells Simon all about Jesus. And Simon is really interested. And comes along. Why do you think he came? Well. What did he seek? What was he seeking? So if, if Peter. If you ask Peter the question. What, what do you seek? He, he would say. Well my, the greatest thing I would seek. Would be the Messiah. That he would come. That's my first thing. That's the thing I'm seeking. And that's why he's so interested. He was seeking the deliverer. That God had promised. So Peter is a regular working guy. Deeply interested in what God is doing. His name isn't Peter yet though. That's coming. John the Baptist was what God was doing. And he was interested in that. And now it's shifting. So Andrew told him. That John the Baptist said. It's Jesus. So he wants to go meet him. So verse 42. He brought him, Andrew brought Peter or Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Now, I don't know how he responded to that. He probably thought, yeah, that's, that's who I am. But then he says, you shall be called Cephas. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated, he says, John right there in verse 42 says, which is trans, he's translating again for you. Why? Cephas is an Aramaic word. People in Asia Minor probably wouldn't even know that word. So he translates it. And he uses the Greek word Petros. So Cephas is Aramaic. Petros is Greek. It means rock. Right? We all know Peter's the rock. Right? So um, and in verse 42 he uses that same word he used in verse 36. Describing John the Baptist looking intently at Jesus. So here Jesus is the one looking intently at Peter. He's not just like oh there's Pete. No it's not like that. He's sizing him up. He's looking at him. Seriously looking at him. And that's when he says this. So that's their first meeting. Jesus and Simon Peter. Not recorded in the other gospels. But again John is supplanting the other gospels with details here. So this event is something he witnessed. That he's sharing here. So here's Peter. Now if you've read the Bible. What's Peter like? Impulsive. Rash. Passionate. And of all the 12, he would be the one that you would label big mouth, right? I mean, <laughs> he could never stop talking when it was not the right time. So that's, that's who he is. The least guarded of all of them. But Jesus chooses this new name for him at their very first meeting. He looks at him. You're Simon. But now you're Peter. Now you're the rock. And probably Andrew's going, him? The rock? <laughs> <laughs> But it's quite an interesting thing. Why call him the rock? Because Jesus is not describing Peter as he is. But as what he's going to become. And he's putting it in his heart. That that's the direction he's going to take him. 
He will become, and he will, become firm and steady and solid and courageous and dependable and all the great qualities that you see in him in the book of Acts. So never judge people by what they were before God begins to work on them, right? God can bring great transformation into people's lives. People change and the spirit sanctifies people over time. And he's going to be with Jesus for three years. J.R. Miller is one of my favorite 19th century preachers. Um, he said this and I just think it's beautiful. He said there were three years between the beginning of the friendship of Jesus and Simon. And the time when the man was ready for his work. The process was not easy. Simon had many hard lessons to learn. Self-confidence had to be changed into humility. Impetuosity had to be chastened and disciplined into quiet self-control. Presumption had to be softened into reverence. Heedlessness had to grow into thoughtfulness. Rashness had to be subdued into prudence. Weakness had to be tempered into calm strength. All this moral history was folded up in the words, you shall be called Cephas, the rock. The meeting by the Jordan was the beginning. A new friendship coming into the life to any life may color all the future of it may change its destiny. We never know what may come of any chance meeting, but the beginning of a friendship with Jesus has infinite possibilities of good. The giving of the new name must have put a new thought of life's meaning into Simon's heart. It must have set a new vision into his soul and kindled new aspirations within his heart. Life must have meant more to him from that hour. He had glimpses of possibilities he had never dreamed before. It's always so when Jesus truly comes into anyone's life. A new conception of character dawns on the soul. A new ideal, a revelation which changes all the thoughts of the living, of, of living your life. So never forget, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, people change and they change dramatically. It's not only possible, that's what the norm is. So now we have another disciple scenario starting at verse 43. Switching stories a little bit later. This time it's about Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is clearly Bartholomew in the other gospels. So that's the only name that's sort of different. Bartholomew is probably son of and that's how he's called in the other gospels. But this, his actual name was Nathaniel. So verse 43 is interesting because it shows the disciples did not always come to Jesus, his new disciples. Sometimes he went and found them. So he's got them in mind here. So verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So now we know that Peter and Andrew and James and John were all friends and business together and Philip is from the town where Peter and Andrew lived. Likely they all know each other. So verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So this is a, these guys aren't just far flung from all over the place. They're so far they're pretty much a group of people that know each other and they were even brothers and, and, and business partners. So um, Jesus did a lot of ministry in Capernaum and Bethsaida, it, well it's been called a fishing suburb of, of Capernaum. So it's like down by the actual lake there, it's where it was, not too far away from Capernaum. And Jesus did tons of ministry there, lots of ministry in both those towns, Capernaum and Bethsaida. In fact, um, he was harshly rejected 
by most of the people in those communities even though he did the most miracles there. And later in the Gospels he condemns those cities as though they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that they were that depraved outwardly but because of their rejection of God he compares them unfavorably to Sodom and Gomorrah. So like Andrew went to get Peter Philip goes to find Nathaniel. So why is John telling us this little story? Is he just this just kind of fun? No he's got a purpose he always has a purpose. The story about Nathaniel affirms and adds to what we've already learned about Jesus in the prologue and in the first part of the narrative portion. So John isn't just reciting memories he's focusing on revealing Jesus as the true and correct object of your faith. He's presenting Jesus to you. So first we have what Philip told Nathanael verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And out of, out of Philip's mouth we have this statement that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the longings of the Old Testament. All the prophecies of that. So John wants you to hear that. That's why he's including this story. And Nathaniel rather famously says in response to that this wonderful statement of faith. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> okay it's not that wonderful. It sounds a little cynical. But it sounds like Nazareth had a bad reputation and maybe it did. Uh, we really don't know enough about it but possibly he just doesn't see any prophetic significance in in that city. It's like Nazareth what where's that in the Bible right? Like Bethlehem the Messiah comes from Bethlehem we know that. That's in the Old Testament but Matt Nazareth he's like hmm maybe it's that. But anyway whatever the reason Nathaniel doesn't see Nazareth as the home of the Messiah. He's not convinced about that. So so what would Philip say to him to get him to come and find out about it right? Well he says what Jesus said. What do you say? Verse 39. Come and see. Well come and see. Let me introduce you to him. And that's enough. Nathaniel will go to see Jesus. He's ready to go. What do you seek Nathaniel? I'm just asking that question. Well even though Nazareth seems like a ridiculous place for the Messiah to come from. He's going to go because he wants to see him too. He's seeking the Messiah as well. All of these men have very similar spiritual longings to see the Messiah come. So in this case he's not actively seeing the Messiah so much but he's certainly open to it. So we aren't told a lot about Nathaniel in the Bible but he's about to experience something really wonderful that comes out of Nazareth. Okay? I should say uh, someone who comes out of Nazareth. So now verse 47 through verse 51. We're going to wrap this up with those but this is pretty interesting and I think if you're just reading casually through the Bible you might miss the point of it. But James I mean Jesus Jesus takes the best character trait of Nathanael and ties it back to Jacob in the Old Testament in a very interesting way. Jake, Jacob is the patriarch of the 12 tribes right? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob had the 12 tribes right? Very very central figure in Jewish history. And at the same time Jesus reveals to Nathanael his supernatural knowledge and that kind of blows him away. So, and, uh, so Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus and as they arrive Jesus makes this declaration about Nathanael. So verse 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or as the King James Bible would say a, a man without guile. 
a man in whom there is no guile. Now guileless people are people who don't lie. They don't manipulate things to their own advantage. It's a, it's a wonderful character trait. They don't bend the truth. They don't say one thing to your face and then another thing behind your back to other people. They're not two-faced. They're one-faced. They, they don't think about doing that. It's just not, they're not in their system to do that. Guileless people don't deceive. It's an incredible virtue. It's kind of a rare virtue. But people, some people are like that. They simply cannot be guileful. I actually married one of those people and there's something particularly wonderful about that quality, that guileless quality because I can be wickedly guileful if I want to be. But she, she literally is. She just doesn't know how to lie. It's like impossible. So <laughs> it's a great virtue. So when Jesus says this about Nathaniel, Nathaniel honestly, guilelessly says, yep, that's true. <laughs> you know, he's not like being super humble about it, but it's actually true about him. So he's amazed that Jesus knows that because they've never met. So he's the person that Jesus sees in Nathaniel, a person that disdains lies, trickery, and deception, especially in himself. How did Jesus know? Did Philip tell him about it? Did he tell him about Nathaniel? Well, verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? That is true about me. How do you know? And the answer blew him away. Jesus answered and said, verse 48, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Far away. I saw you. And the one reason John includes this event is because he wants us to hear what Nathaniel said after that. <laughs> so he's reacting to this special knowledge that Jesus has about the fit, where he was when Philip found him. Verse 40, 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's the second time John has used son of God and brought that into his gospel, affirming that title again. And it's the first time Jesus is called the king of Israel. So John is reinforcing and adding to the titles of Jesus which are being stacked up here in chapter 1. Son of God now, king of Israel. And then in verse 50, Jesus seems a little bit amused by this kind of strong reaction that he had to this kind of a simple little miracle. I mean it wasn't like super spectacular or anything like that. Just his his knowledge there. But verse 50, Jesus answered and said, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Jesus isn't used to believe people putting that much faith in him for something small, right? You will see greater things than these, he says. That's a great promise. What a wonderful promise. Wouldn't you love it to have Jesus say to you, oh, you like that miracle? You're going to see a lot greater stuff than that, right? But it's the last verse that really jumps out, especially in connection with Nathaniel's guilelessness. And this is the reference to Jacob. There's a clear reference to Jacob in verse 51. Jacob's ladder. There's an old Negro, Negro spiritual called uh, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. It's a beautiful song. I love to listen to it. But um, Jacob's ladder is a famous thing. That's Jacob's marvelous dream that he had in Genesis chapter 28. And let me just uh, tell you how it's described in Genesis 28:12. He had a dream and behold a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then in this dream, God affirms to Jacob that the covenant with Abraham, which was passed on to Isaac, is now being passed on to him. So he is truly in the line of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 13 of Genesis 28, Behold, the Lord stood above it 
and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise he made to Abraham. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now he's passing that on to Jacob. The covenant promises are his. So in verse 17 of Genesis 28, Jacob cries out, how awesome is this place? (laughs) This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He sees that in the dream and that's what he shouts out. The gate of heaven. Now, if you know Genesis, when did God make this promise to Jacob? When did he make it to Jacob? It's immediately after Jacob had to flee his home because he deceived his father and stole his brother's blessing. Jacob, thy name is Guile. (laughs) He was a a deceitful, rotten person. His name even means supplanter. Taking over for somebody, taking something, uprooting somebody else's situation. It took a lot of years before Jacob became an honest person. Many years. And God would change his name to Israel. But he makes the promise while he's being Jacob and acting like Jacob. So here long before the change was of this, this wretched deceiver God promised him the covenant even while he was a, a horrible person. So Jacob's ladder and the covenant a key moment in Genesis. So let's ask our question. If you ask Jacob at that moment, what do you seek? What would he say? Well, if he was honest, he would say, because he's guileful, he, he, he might not tell you the truth. But if he was honest in that moment, he'd say, I seek advantage over other men. I want to supplant them and take what's theirs. He, he sought whatever he could get away with. That's what he sought. There's a lot of people like that. Whatever I can get away with, that's what I seek. Now, God sought him because he wasn't seeking God. See, God comes to him at his worst moments. It doesn't say anything about him seeking God at that moment. God comes to him in this dream. God taught Jacob to seek him by being gracious to him. God's grace is what started to turn him. But God also let him feel the consequences for his wickedness, his actions over time. So now back to Nathaniel here. What was he doing under that fig tree? We have no idea. But because Jesus makes an allusion to Jacob's ladder, many people have speculated that Nathaniel was reading about or thinking or reflecting on Genesis 28 and Jacob. Doesn't say that. But a lot of people think that's what he was doing under, the fig tree is where you go because it's real shady and you you read or you meditate about things, where you rest. And so some people think that. One Bible scholar, Merrill Tinney, he says, uh, perhaps he mused if God would reveal himself to a scoundrel like Jacob who neither sought nor desired his presence, he should reveal himself to one who craved to know him. Maybe, we don't know that at all, but maybe. But Nathaniel in this scenario is 
the opposite of Jacob. He's not deceitful. He's not that kind of a person. He is seeking God. So Jacob's ladder is used by Jesus to tell Nathanael about the greater things that he's going to see. So he said, oh, you think this is a good one? Greater things are coming. You're going to see greater things than this. So look at verse 51 carefully. What takes the place of the ladder in this verse? He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You get what he's saying? So when Jacob saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder, he said, this is the gate of heaven. And Jesus is saying to him, I am the gate of heaven. And that's what you're going to see. Jesus is the ladder. He's the gateway to heaven. He's the source of God's grace, saving grace. He's the perfect and ultimate revelation of God himself. And over the next few years, Daniel's going to see much more of God than he could ever have imagined in the person of Jesus Christ, which is right what John's theme's been all along. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. So he sought God and Jesus promises to him that his desires will be fulfilled. Even by a guy from Nazareth, it will be fulfilled. And that takes us back to our original question. What do you seek? All of these men were truth seekers. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they were seeking the truth. They weren't religious freaks. They weren't oddballs. These were regular men who knew there was a God and knew that he was doing something significant in their day. And if, instead of ignoring God or uh, putting him on the side or in a box or parking God in the garage or whatever you want to say, they knew, as all good men know, that it's his universe and that he is working in this world. And our life is short and he comes first. That's what he was, that's what they knew. That's what they knew. They knew that eternal things are way more important than temporal things. And that after 400 years God was speaking again and they wanted to be a part of whatever he was doing. That's how they saw it. And now that Christ had come and taught us all that we need to know about God and his plan. And now that he's paid the debt of our sin for the cross. We're on the other side of this great journey that he's going to take. Because we can see what it was all about. The greater things. We can see them. We have them here. And when he sees that Jesus paid the debt for his sin. When he sees that he rose from the dead. When, they, when he sees that he's reigning in heaven. And he's coming back. It doesn't matter if that's 10 years after his time or 2,000 years after his time. That's what God did. He visited earth and bore our sins himself on the cross and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and he's ruling now. God's plan is still in effect today and he's still saving men from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's told us the truth about him. And he's told us the truth that we have a broken relationship with him that needs to be restored. And that he has provided that restoration in Christ. Restoration, forgiveness, and eternal life. Life is short. Eternity lasts forever. So what do you seek? That's the big question. What do you seek? Let's pray. Lord, all of life and, well, even common wisdom calls on us to seek you because... You're everything. But so many refuse. Like Adam in the garden, we want to be our own God. 
But how foolish that is. Your son asks what do you seek. So we will look at ourselves and we will examine ourselves and see if we seek you. Give us grace that you gave to Jacob, Lord. Give us grace to seek, knowing that if we seek Jesus, we will indeed find him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.